This is episode number 130. Is your brain slowing you down? With Dr. Stephen Chung. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, spanning the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, inspiring stories, and sports science to help you be better every day. You have a lot more physical capacity at any one time. 99.9% of the time, it's really how close to that limit are you willing to go. That can be a physiological reason, but it can also be a perceptual reason. But it comes down to your brain saying, given all that's going on, how hard am I willing to go right this second? It's hard to believe that it is already August. In the back of my mind, I always have goals for the summer, independent of the bike. And I think, oh yeah, like by the end of the summer, I'll have that done. And then today I realized it was August and the end of the summer is rapidly approaching. So I better get myself in gear. I hope you've had awesome adventures and great races if you like racing and definitely just fun times outside. I want to say a big thank you to those of you who pre-ordered my Moxie and Grit jersey. We are almost sold out. They almost sold out in the pre-order. So they are now available to ship and there's a few left. So if you want to get a Moxie and Grit cycling jersey, go to moxieandgrit.com. That's M-O-X-Y-A-N-D-G-R-I-T.com. I also want to say thank you so, so much to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. It makes a huge difference whenever I see that every single month. And just kicking a few bucks a month to the show really does help the growth. It helps cover the costs and also helps my awesome and amazing audio engineer, Roma, keep the lights on. So thank you so much to those of you who are supporting my work and also to those of you who share the show on Instagram. I always add those to my Instagram stories and it's been really fun to connect with you and see what episodes are resonating with you. So speaking of episodes, we should get into today's episode. And if you're familiar with my podcast, I'm sure you've heard other episodes with the acclaimed researcher and environmental physiologist, Dr. Stephen Chung. And Dr. Chung is not only a wealth of knowledge on the topic of environmental physiology, but he is an avid cyclist himself, and he is just recovering from a pretty bad injury. So it's been good to see him back out there on the bike. He is a professor at Brock University in the Department of Kinesiology, and he is also the author of the textbook, Advanced Environmental Physiology. He's also the author of the books, Cutting Edge Cycling and Cycling Science. And you may have heard him on the show in episode 93, talking about how to heat train, which we did whenever I was going to Cape Epic, or episode 114 on how to train for altitude. And those episodes were both massively helpful for myself and also the feedback that I got. So if you're curious about those things, definitely check out those episodes. He was in Kelowna and on sabbatical from Brock University earlier this year in my hometown of Kelowna, British Columbia. And I was fortunate enough to get to pick his brain on all sorts of topics multiple times. And he so kindly spent his time chatting with me on this podcast more than once. In his spare time, he is the sports science and training editor for PezCyclingNews.com. So he definitely stays pretty busy with all the things that you just heard. And I'm excited about this episode in particular because it involves something we have all experienced, wanting to slow down while exercising. And there are several schools of thought and fascinating research about perception of effort, on fatigue, on whether limits live in our mind or in our body. 
and how to even trick ourselves to go harder for longer. And as a side note, if you enjoy this episode, I highly recommend you also check out my episode with Alex Hutchinson and his book Endure, or my episode with mental fatigue researcher Dr. Walter Stiano. All these episodes I've mentioned are in the show notes. So if you heard something that you maybe missed on some previous episodes, definitely go check them out. It was really fun to sit down with Dr. Chung on this topic because the theory of what causes us to slow down is somewhat controversial. And Dr. Chung offers a pretty balanced view. He has also done a lot of his own research in his lab by seeing how heat affects the body and also how motivational self-talk affects how someone slows down. And he's written a lot of papers on this. If you want to check it out, there's some papers linked up in the show notes, or you can just go to Google and just Google Dr. Stephen Chung research papers. We covered a lot in this podcast, but the things that I think you'll find most notable and interesting are how to train your brain to push yourself harder, motivation, relativity, and benchmarking of pain, how to know if you're actually just mentally fatigued or if you're simply just not motivated, the role of motivational self-talk and some examples of good self-talk to help you go harder and longer. We had a conversation about quitting, how to get out of the rut of quitting, or how to know when you should quit due to environmental factors that could be dangerous for your health. And we talked about things like deception of data to get someone to go harder, and if music actually helps you be a faster athlete. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode with Dr. Stephen Chung. There is a lot of great things to learn, a lot of great things to apply starting now on your bike rides or on your runs or pretty much any time. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button on the show. And also I have a free weekly newsletter. It's sonyalooney.com slash newsletter, where I send out a notification of the Crush It Monday episode and also of the interview episode of the week. And sometimes if I have additional things to share, like if I had a video project I did or something like that, I will also include that in the newsletter. So thanks to those of you who are subscribed and I hope you guys are enjoying it. And if you want to get in the Insider Club, go to sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. All right, so let's get into this fascinating episode with Dr. Stephen Chung. Welcome back again to the show, Dr. Chung. Hopefully third time lucky. Hopefully I'm not as injured as the last time we talked. That's right. Well, today I think is a really interesting topic and we've recorded some other episodes and this is going to be great to round those other ones out. But today we're talking about mental fatigue and whether it is in your body or in your mind. And it's pretty cool that you've done so much research and been a part of so many different studies that have looked into whether our brains are giving up first or our bodies are giving up first. Yeah, that's a subject that continues to fascinate me. And it really started for me in during my PhD days when I did a study that looked at soldiers exercising chemical warfare clothing, and they were told to rot or sorry, walk on a treadmill for as long as they're willing to. And the surprising thing we found was that the highly fit individuals were able to go substantially longer and tolerate a much higher core temperature than the relatively sedentary, less trained individuals. And the temperature which they fatigued was similar, which was also an interesting study in terms of whether they were hydrated, whether they were heat adapted or anything else. But again, the fascinating thing was 
sure, every moderately fit individual came out at about the same consistent temperature, but there was a systematic difference between them and the highly fit individuals. And it was almost just a throwaway line in a paper that I wrote based on this study, but it's become hugely cited, still my most highly cited paper. And most people point to that as one of the start of this whole idea of what is it about temperature that directly causes fatigue? And also, what is it about fitness that seems to provide benefit in terms of being able to push ourselves harder? So I hope that I had a small part to play in this whole jumpstart in our field of why is it that we fatigue? And, you know, is it physiology or is it perception? Yeah. And if uh, you guys have listened to the podcast we recorded back in the spring about heat training, you can learn a lot about even the mental side. But I think the biggest takeaway was that there is an absolute temperature where you have to stop. Yeah, absolutely. There is ultimately a temperature. And again, my study didn't name it directly, but it led to subsequent studies in the next few years that termed the phrase a critical internal temperature model. And the idea was that there was something directly about temperature that caused you to fatigue. And it seemed to cause the fatigue consistently that, for example, everybody had to stop at 39 and a half degree core temperature in this particular condition. So the real trick and the field really exploded from there starting in around the early 2000s about, well, what is it about, in this case, temperature that caused us to fatigue? And also, is it truly a limiter? Because at the same time, it led to a counter argument that's saying it's not necessarily a physiology of temperature in this case, but Professor Tim Noakes in South Africa came out with this alternate model, which he called the central governor model, which was really much more of a psychology-based it said it wasn't really temperature in this case that he was building his argument. It wasn't temperature that was causing you to fatigue. It was really the temperature causing your brain to say, I'm in distress and I better slow down. And that's why you fatigue. So again, this whole field of physiology versus psychology, obviously it's been around for a long time, but really in the late 90s and early 2000s, it really started branching out and really ballooning into whole different ranges of models. So we have Noakes' central governor that if we want, we can talk about more. We also have a variation or a whole different model, depending on who you talk to, with Samueli Makora's model of this whole psychobiological theory of motivation. You know, again, there's now a lot of different models from a psychology standpoint that looks at psychological factors of why we slow down, not necessarily just the physiological reasons. Yeah. And I mean, everybody has probably exercised in the heat and felt really hot and that they should slow down or they should quit. But the hard part is knowing when to quit because you can't actually, I mean, you could, but most people don't have a thermometer and they're not going to measure their core temperature and say, oh, I'm at the critical temperature where I need to stop. So in this situation, like an example would be Dirty Kanza a couple months ago where it was really hot or like I've done multiple races where I probably should have quit because I was showing signs of heat stroke. But like, how do people know if it is in their head or if it is a physiological detriment where they're going to be in danger? I'll back up a little bit and say that even though my kind of main research area is on temperature, it's and the original kind of critical internal temperature and the central governor from Noakes was really built around the heat model. It's really expanded out to much more holistic than just temperature itself. 
And the whole central governor kind of idea and the whole psychological idea is really now encompassing a really holistic approach to all the feedback that the body is getting. So yes, there's heat, but there's also things of your glycogen levels, of your muscle feedback from your muscles, how sore they are, and the metabolites may be building up, your respiratory distress, how hard is it for you to breathe? And last time I was on the show, we talked about altitude training and exposure to altitude. That's also a stimulus to the brain. But at its very essence of any of these psychology models, what they are saying is your brain is constantly taking in a whole bunch of cues from your body, your physiology across all of these parameters I just mentioned, and many more, but also your stress levels, your mental fatigue, so to say, of, you know, did I get lousy sleep last night? Did I just have a lot of stress at work? Did I just have a fight with my partner? Did the kids, you know, were they all fighting before I left the door and to go for my training ride. It's taking all of these measures and at any one time it is calculating, given all that is going on in my body and in my life, how hard am I willing to go right now? So that's really nice and interesting advance in this field is that people are recognizing there is this physiology, but there's also this holistic whole body approach to determining how hard we're willing to exercise at any one time. So getting back to the Dirty Kanza example of where it's really hot, it's a, for the winner who just barely broke 10 hours for the first time to the back of the pack finisher, the last finisher could be at 20 hours. And you know there is a long, long time and your body is constantly changing over that time. And one time, you have a lot more physical capacity. If I ask you to at the very end of Dirty Kanza, if there is somebody chasing after you with a very sharp stick and poking you in the back, you're going to sprint harder. You can sprint harder, but you're just not willing to at that any one time. So that's to get back to this whole kind of overarching model is you have a lot more physical capacity at any one time. 99.9% .9 of the time, it's really how close to that limit are you willing to go and that can be a physiological reason, but it can also be a perceptual reason. But it comes down to your brain saying, given all that's going on, how hard am I willing to go right this second? Yeah. And I mean, going back to using heat as like the primary driver of making these decisions, if you are heat stroking out, it's really hard to even make a good decision because your brain is getting fried. Yeah, and that's true with a lot of stressors, whether it's even if you're hypoglycemic, right? You're hallucinating <laughs> by then. Yeah, you're hangry and you're not the same as in terms of the mental state. And certainly from an occupational physiology, which is also another area I work in, industrial accidents happen for a whole lot of reasons. And looking at industrial guidelines for things like heat exposure, it's, I always say, you know, it's really not the fact that they're going to keel over and collapse at the work site that's your biggest problem it happens way before then it happens because you're already making poor decisions you're maybe not recognizing an alarm you're maybe not balancing as well and you're slipping and sliding instead and that's causing an accident or you're not hearing as well or focusing as well of something else that's happening and you get run over by a forklift so it's all these different things that are going on that is you know, more psychological than just you know, the physiology that's a limiter to your capacity. And it's, again, 
it works in an occupational setting, it's work in an athletic setting too. So if we want to take the central governor theory from Tim Noakes and apply it to a bike race, for example, like you said, if someone's chasing you with a stick or a bear is chasing you or something at the end, you're going to find that you actually have more than you thought you did. And therefore your brain was shutting you down before your body was actually done. So what's the best way for somebody to train this so that they can actually push themselves harder and override that signal from their brain saying, Hey, like you should probably slow down because this hurts. Yeah. And again, Noakes's argument has always been what he loved to present at his talks is a picture of a Ferrari F1 car. And he always poses the question of, well, how fast can this car go? You know, people put their hands up, well, 350 kilometers an hour or whatever. And his response is always how fast a driver is willing to let it go, right? It, you're going around a 90 degree bend in the rain. You're not going at 350 K an hour, even though the car technically can, right? So that's his analogy for the brain as the driver and the car is, you know, the body or the physiology. So in terms of what you can do about it is the idea really is to push yourself in training so that you feel the discomfort in training. And I'm always a big advocate of training isn't just about the physiology. It's about the discomfort and about being used to that discomfort. And by discomfort, I mean a whole host of things. It can be the fact that you have a sore back and, uh, and you're not able to work as hard as a result and you feel constantly your back throbbing. It can be heat. It can be the fact that you are starting to get hypoglycemic and you aren't you know, thinking straight. If you're doing dirty Kanza, again, that's a 10 to 20 hour event and you're going to probably run into stretches like that. So it's important in training to get used to that. And again, the analogy I like to uh, use is not only are you training physiology, you want to make that Ferrari car better in terms of having more horsepower, being lighter, being able to go faster, but you also want to be willing to push it harder. So you have to experience it in training. And I think there's no way to get around it because the other component of Tim Noakes' model in terms of this whole central governor or experience model is exactly that experience. So if you have never run, let's say at a 10K race pace before, and you know at whatever pace you want to target at you're not going to know how it feels and it's going to feel very distressing and that's going to be a stress and a sort of source of anxiety for your brain and your brain's going to not respond well to it but if you have run that pace in training even for shorter periods of time you're going to be used to that discomfort so for example you know again in a cycling sense if you want to be able to ride at 250 or 300 watts for an hour let's say you have an event that's an hour in time trial and your target is 250 watts but if you have never ridden that before you're not going to be able to handle it because it's such a new experience for you and uh, whereas if you have experienced it before even if it's shorter periods of time even for 10 minutes and then you rest and then 10 minutes again you do intervals at that 250 watts it's going to feel much more comfortable, much less distressing, and you're going to be able to put up with that discomfort for a much longer period of time. So how best to deal with it? It really is 
getting that training in so that not only physically are you capable of doing it, but psychologically you're willing to put up with that discomfort. Yeah, I've really noticed that in particular in the winter because I spend time on my, like I ride Oahu kicker trainer and then I've been using trainer road workouts, which are really hard workouts. And I'll find that like, I'll really push myself. And when I'm in my garage, if I get to my limit, all I have to do is get off my bike and go inside. Whereas if I was outside pushing myself, trying to do the same thing, I might have to find a way to ride home. So being able to push myself like that in my garage using trainer road has been awesome because even now, like in the summer, when I'm going really hard in a race and I feel myself saying, no, this is too hard. I tell myself, think about the trainer, think about how hard you went on the trainer and you could keep going. And that's enabled me mentally to keep pushing through a barrier that I previously thought existed when it really didn't. Yeah. And it can be that workout. It can even be any kind of former life experience. And I know when I was, I always marvel what the brain is able to do. My personal experience with that was after high school, I joined the, um, the airborne reserves and I did boot camp in the Canadian forces. And during a two week field expedition at the end of it, we did a 15 kilometer force march with full packs on and it was just absolutely pounding lashing down rain and we had a let's just say my boots and i had a disagreement and the boots won (laughs) and i ended up with massive just really blood in the boots from both my heels being completely torn up and shredded at the end and it was one of those things i kept pushing myself pushing myself pushing myself i got to the end of the march and i literally keeled over and i couldn't do another step Right. So we've all had those experiences where we look back and say, like, wow, how did I do that? And I still use that experience as motivation of knowing physically it hurt intensely, but it was that motivation to finish and not slow the entire unit down, not be yelled at by the drill instructor that pushed me onwards. And that really gets to Samuele Marcora's model of this psychobiological model of motivation where. He says the body is constantly balancing two things. It's balancing your motivation for whether you're willing to put up with the discomfort and also with really the discomfort itself. And, you know, if it was just any other situation, my motivation level for that march probably wouldn't have been as high. If there wasn't a drill instructor constantly yelling at me to keep marching, you know, my motivation would have been lower and I probably would have stopped. But because that motivation was there, I was willing to put up with this very extreme discomfort much more than I normally could. So that's kind of how Marcora's model, it's in a sense, it's similar, but it's also different from Noakes' model. You know, Marcora really looks at it more from that whole motivation model, which I like that model in the sense that it really talks about that discomfort, talks about that psychological discomfort and that willingness to push beyond and kind of things we can do to really force ourselves out of our comfort zone. So how is it different than Noakes? Noakes is in some senses a little bit more benign in that it's saying it's taking uh, all of these physiological cues and also your past experience at an event. So again, you know, what was your previous best 10k run time and and your body immediately builds that into its ongoing calculus. So it's more, I wouldn't say they're dramatically different, 
Markora feels it's drastically different. I don't really get that sense. I feel they're really talking very similar things. Ultimately, it's really about integrating all of the inputs into your body. And again, both physical, physiological, but also psychological. And your body saying, am I willing to put up with it at any one time or not? And uh, either stopping or, or reducing your exercise level. So they will argue that it's completely different. I will say they're you know really talking about a similar merging of holistic integrative physiology and psychology. Something that I really liked about Marcora's research was that, and maybe this was also in Tim Noakes' research, but I just didn't learn it, was that mental fatigue really contributes to perception of effort and motivation. So like you mentioned earlier, if you didn't sleep well, if your kids were arguing, if you had a hard day at work where you're just your brain has just been flooded with all this stuff and your brain is tired, when you go to get on your bike physically, like you might actually be able to put out the watts, but because your brain is tired, the perception of, oh, I, I can't push anymore, it's just there. And respecting that mental fatigue and, and understanding when you're actually fatigued versus when your brain is just fatigued. Yeah, and and uh, how to combat that. So you've had a hard day, you get in and it's you haven't really eaten and you want to get out for hard effort before dinner, but you know there's so much else to do. So you already start out on the bike and you're not in a great headspace. Well, should you even go and do that interval workout, for example, that you had planned? It's hard to say. I would say, you know, warm up and really do the first couple of efforts. Give them, you know, your full effort. And if at the end of that second interval, it still feels really, really, truly horrible and your head still isn't really in it, turn around and go home. But a lot of the times you find that, especially if you're doing something that you love, if cycling's your release or running is your release or whatever sport you're doing, and you'll find that, you know, this is actually great. You know, this is my, this is how I get away from everything. For most of us, that's why we do exercise, right? It's it because it brings joy to our life. It's not a chore. It's something we actually look forward to. So once you put that aside and you're actually out doing something and active, you'll often find that, I can actually do this and I'm actually starting to really enjoy this. So you may start out dreading a workout. Don't turn around right away. Get into the first few efforts and then really evaluate and be honest with yourself. Is it really not happening? Go home. But you may find out that, yeah, this is actually really good and I can actually put out the watts and, and keep going from there. And what percentage or role would motivational self-talk play in something like this? Because if you're going out, you're like, oh God, I'm so tired. I don't want to do this. Like, I'm just not like, you just set yourself up for failure. But if you start saying to yourself, oh, I love cycling. This is my release, or this is a great opportunity to get faster. I'm lucky I got off work early enough to even be able to get out. How much does it actually play a role in feeling better? I think it plays a huge role. And I think another thing athletes and individuals need to develop is when things are going wrong is how to refocus and how to reframe their negative thoughts into something actually enjoyable. And whether it is different kinds of motivational self-talk or reframing, okay, I don't really feel great on the bike. I've just had all the stress in my life, but hey, I'm on my bike. And 
this is a chance for me to, you know, feel better afterwards because I'm doing something I love. You know, so I think it's also really important to have those strategies in place for when it is a bad day so that you can turn your thoughts around into being positive instead of being negative because that happens in races too, right? You all go through rough patches of any kind, whether you're just not feeling it for whatever reason because you're starting to get hungry or because you're starting to get dehydrated or you just feel that, you know, this is race is way above your level right now, but it's critical in racing to be able to mentally turn it around and to refocus. So I think that's also a critical strategy and it completely fits in Marcora's model of motivation. I've had personal experience with this in research and we talked about it in my heat episode with you, but we did a study in 2017 with my master's student at the time, Phil Wallace. And what we did was looking at whether motivational uh, self-talk and that training improves your tolerance to exercise capacity in, in the heat to really hard exercise in a hot environment. And we had two groups, one that had before and after tests in the heat. And the first group, the control group had no intervention. We just told them to come back in two weeks, we'll test you again. The other group got a really individualized motivational skills training type of intervention where we worked with them carefully one-on-one to develop these refocusing mantras. And then we tested them again afterwards. So those two groups had no differences in their physiology and their physical ability, VO2 max, whatever, before and after. But the motivational skills group was able to go about 25% or more longer in the heat in a very, very hard exercise. So it was only psychology that was doing this. It wasn't any physical improvement at all in these two individuals or in these two groups. Their training was exactly the same and uh, the response was night and day different. So I'm a big believer in that motivational skills and that really feeds into the Marcora model. And again, I think the Noakes model touches on it, but it was never really developed well enough before Marcora really brought in the motivation model to really uh, be a central focus of that, that central governor model. But I'm a big believer in it, and I think it's critical to do in training because it's something we really rely on in competition itself. And can you give some examples of what those refocusing mantras were so people can maybe try them out? Yeah, we didn't have a set template, but again, it was a response to a very hard exercise in the heat. And we told them or we encouraged them to develop their own individualized mantras. So it wasn't just we told everyone, be happy. It was you figure out what makes yourself happy when things are hard. So when you feel, oh, it's so damn hot. I can't stand this anymore. I'm sweating everywhere. It's getting in my eyes. I hate this. It's recognizing that and then developing your own personal refocusing thoughts, refocusing statements. It could be thoughts, it could be statements, but it could be things as, you know, you're doing great. This is a sign of effort. You know, you're pushing harder. That's all it means. And those kind of things. So it's, it was really up to each individual to figure out what works best for them, whether it was, you know, a direct reframing of, you know, flipping a, something that's a stress onto its head. Like I'm sweating. It means I'm working hard. This is great or whether it's more of a dissociative thing or, well, let's think about, you know, the last time this worked for you and last time you were sweating and how great you rode in the heat last time. So it was really 
different for everybody. There was no single you know, mantra that I can just say worked for all. It's really up to each of us to recognize what our limiters are, what really triggers our bad mental state, and then really figure out a way to refocus that. What's a mantra that you personally like to use for yourself? I really like the fact that, you know, I'm pushing my body. This is great. I am push harder and you can dig through it. And one of the deals, one of the ways I personally deal with, with hard stress is making a next milestone. And I actually make a deal mentally with my body. My brain does. It says, okay, get to this next milestone. You can quit. And I literally say that to myself. It's like, you can quit. And we have this super hard club ride that's a training race on Tuesdays in our group back in Ontario where it's way above my grade. It's these guys that are usually way faster than me and I just hang on for dear life in the race and I literally say lap per lap, next lap you can quit but you have to stay with them. And I have this etch a sketch in my brain it seems that as soon as I cross that finish line I go and say okay do one more lap then you can quit. And I literally break it down into that. It's like, just keep going. Doesn't matter. Stay in this group. You can quit the next lap. So that's my personal way that I deal with it. I offer my, myself the chance to quit and I always renege on the deal afterwards. One that I think is funny, Matt's not here to defend himself, but when he's in pain in a race, he's like, this is good because I know everybody else around me is hurting and I'm making them hurt. So yeah. that's his. For me, I tell myself, Whenever I feel this kind of pain, this is good because this is what I train for. And this is me being strong, like being strong and having a good race performance doesn't mean that you don't feel pain. In fact, it might mean that you feel the most pain you've ever felt, but you're just able to deal with it. Yeah. And sometimes it can be about tormenting others. And since my research is all about making other people suffer, I remember back in my main road racing days in the early nineties and, uh, we have a race in BC called the Tour of White Rock and there was one super steep hill and I remember one time I was in a breakaway with another guy and he was always behind me on the hill and I could just hear his breathing. I could just, and I could literally, I didn't never had to look at him to see how he was doing. I could just hear and whenever I would push the pace a little, I just heard him suffering and from his breathing and I says, Ooh, this is fun. Let's go see what happens if I push a little bit harder. So actually someone else's discomfort can also be your, your mantra, right? Can also encourage you to push harder because you know, you're making another person suffer. So, you know, in Matt's case, he was hoping other people were suffering. I could actually hear it. And that was a goad for me. So it can be very situational too. If you know, you're causing other people pain, that's sometimes it's a great thing. Yeah, my, uh, I guess if I put it on the podcast, it's not so secret, but I'll just tell you my secrets. My way of torturing people psychologically in a race is I've trained myself, even if I'm at a high respiratory frequency, I can, I've trained myself to be able to almost hold my breath. And then I start singing or I start yelling or I start just like, and I did this actually at the NIMBY 50 and it's not like fake. I'm having fun and I, like, I'm generally enthusiastic but if I know that my competition can hear me, I make sure that I'm extra loud because, man, if you're dying and then you hear someone <laughs> singing, like, that sucks. <laughs> so, and, and people have done it to me as well. And it's kind of fun because in my stage racing, sometimes I have a partner I race with, sometimes Gordon Wadsworth, and he and I will both do it together while we're passing people. And 
we might be at our complete limit, but it just mentally breaks down your competition. So if you guys want to try that, you can. If I hear someone singing to me in a race, I know that it's payback time. <laughs> yeah, so it goes back to motivation, right? Again, in, in that case I related, my making someone else suffer was my motivation. In other cases, it can be that deal of just get to the next milestone, you can quit. That's my motivation. And in your case, it was, you know, I can make other people kind of play games with other people. And also in terms, it was also dissociative. It was, it was by singing, it was proof to me that I can handle it, but it was also proof to everyone else is it's not hurting me that much. So yeah, it's really, everyone should come up with their own strategy and what works best for them, whether it's this kind of really dissociative getting outside of your body or other people find that they really want, in essence, to embrace that pain, to really feel, to be that more associative model of really feeling the discomfort and reframing that to this is showing that I am actually going really fast, right? And that's another kind of method for people. So there is no one right way. Again, when we go back to whether it's a central governor or the Marcora motivational model, it's really ways to improve, increase your motivation and therefore the discomfort that you're willing to put up with. And this is something we actually have never talked about on the podcast. So I'm excited that you mentioned, well, if I can just do one more lap, then I can quit. Some people have trouble with quitting as a thing, like they quit races if something goes wrong. And that sucks because you never feel good after you quit. But in that moment, if you just get used to quitting, then you just start quitting more and more and it just becomes a habit. So if someone is in this rut of quitting every time something gets hard, what's a good way for them to start carving a new path so that they stop quitting races? That's an excellent question. And I would say probably the best way is to, first off, be at peace with the fact that you've quit races before don't beat yourself up over it every race is new and different so just because you've quit the race last time you were doing it or your very last race doesn't mean you're going to quit this race so first thing is to put that in the past and because it is the past it doesn't predict your future and possibly the other thing to do is really to reframe your expectations of okay, you know, what is my motivation for doing this race? Is it to you know, be on the podium or is it to really push yourself to your limit and push yourself as hard as you can? And I think that's also really critical. Now, this is probably where you and I diverge. You have a good chance of being on the podium. Most days in events, I'm not going to be on the podium. So you have to find joy in what you do, right? And And you have to say, you know, is this something that you know, I truly am enjoying because, you know, I know I'm not never going to be on the podium no matter how strong I am unless everyone else falls over in front of me. So, you know, you really have to understand what is my motivation for being here and is it to push myself? Is it as a reward for all the hard training that I do? Or is it to be on the podium and realize what it is and then work towards those mental goals? So I think the first thing is really put it in the past. Just because you quit before doesn't mean anything to this race and reframe yourself and possibly reframe your expectations 
and also remember why you're doing something to begin with. Again, for most of us, it's not our job. It is something we do because we love. So think of it that way. This is a chance to do what I love, to be active, to be out with friends, to have a cold beer at the end of, with my friends. Maybe that's the motivation that you need. That Maybe that's all you need is if I make it through, I'm going to go and enjoy my time with my friends. And, you know, we sure... Even from a you know a body image food angle, we don't necessarily want to reward or penalize ourselves with food. But you know, in some circumstances, maybe it is useful. Maybe it is useful to say that, hey, I'm going to reward myself with you know, I never eat ice cream, but I'm going to have a have a ice cream sandwich at the end because if that's what it takes to get you to the finish line and mentally, then go for it. I have no problem with that at all. And it's not something we want to do every day, but maybe that's what you need to get through that particular day. And with quitting, sometimes people quit races because of pressure and their ego. Like if you are racing for the podium and you had a mechanical or you're just having a bad day, I've seen people quit or not even show up to the race because they can't handle not being on the podium. That's an external, that's looking for external validation in some ways. And it's, it's okay if you're racing only for the podium, but I like racing because you love racing first. And then if you happen to be on the podium, that's awesome. But then there's the other side of quitting. There's the ego side of, or like, even if you're not racing for the podium, like what are my friends going to think if I'm slower today? What are people going to think about me? And that's really hard. And being able to address that and that your worth isn't based on your race result or your time that you got at a race. But then there's the other part of quitting, which I think is even more relevant to this conversation is quitting because it's hot or quitting because you're at altitude or quitting because of some environmental factor and knowing when you should quit. And if you did quit because of an environmental factor, knowing, looking back, should I have quit or not? Did I quit because it felt too hard or did I quit because I was actually in danger? And I think I might've asked this earlier, but like, how do you know when you're in danger and when you should quit from an environmental factor? Yeah, that's also really interesting. The challenge with that is most of the time you don't know you're in danger because you're too caught up in the moment, right? You're probably too motivated. And so you're not realizing that you're imminently going to go into heat exhaustion or that you are going way too hard and you're at altitude than you should be, or that you haven't been feeding yourself enough and you're getting hypoglycemic. So it is really challenging because most of the time it's really insidious and it's not something that, oh yeah, hey, I'm really hot right now and I should be doing X, Y, or Z. And that's where self kind of awareness is important. It's not perfect because again, we're so caught up in it, but just um, realize that these are potential issues and really you know, do these self-checks on yourself and whether it's something even as simple as setting an um, alarm on your watch every 15 minutes and every 15 minutes I'm going to, you know, drink a bottle or take a good drink from my water bottle or I'm going to eat gel or, or some piece of food every half hour. You know, if it takes you to do that, then, you know, do so, right? And it sounds stupid, but, you know, and, and people would go on like, why is your Garmin, you know, beeping? Well, if it's, that's what it takes, 
do it. And uh, because it is so difficult to recognize these signals in yourself that the best method is prevention is by taking care of your body and really doing things so that you can last the entire event. Another thing that I think is helpful too is looking for degradation. So are you getting worse and is it not getting better? So if you're doing a really long race and it's just getting worse and worse and worse, there is a certain point where you're probably endangering yourself. And we were talking about some research earlier before we started recording where they took some MRIs of some adventure racers. And I want you to tell the story about that. But these people, they probably can push their body to a more extreme limit. So when those people, so I'd love to hear more information about the study. And then when should those people know when to quit? Because I would say that Myself, I can relate more with them because I've really been in dangerous situations and it's important to know when to quit. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And again, this goes back to the whole idea of what is it about fitness that seems to allow you to push yourself harder. And again, we talked right at the start about some of my PhD studies that showed it from a heat angle. This particular sets of study in that was done in San Diego, I found super fascinating. It came out around 2012 or so, but what they had were tested the multi-day adventure racers, which involves anything from canoeing, kayaking, mountain biking, orienteering, and multi-day. The big famous one is Southern Traverse in New no Zealand. <laughs> yeah, no sleeping. And they tested these elite individuals with your typical college age recreational or generally active individuals. They tested them in MRIs and what they, the participants didn't know was the timing and the severity of a stimulus. They knew they were getting some stimulus, but they looked at the stimulus was actually essentially a almost choking. It was restricting their breathing and it was pretty short. Nobody was harmed in this. It ran through ethics. <laughs> you but, science people yeah, are my, just evil. Us, yeah, it sounds great. So that was the stress and they were looking at the activity in the MRI and the recreational kind of control group, their brains lit up like 4th of July. It was crazy. They were hyperactivated, really strong sympathetic drive, all of these things. But the adventure racers, there was almost no change in their MRI. It was really, really mild at best. So it seems that these adventure racers were able to tolerate more discomfort. And even if it was a sudden shock, of a discomfort. So it absolutely goes back to the point I made earlier that training seems to be just as much about putting up with discomfort as it is about the physiology. Where the trick really becomes and where the challenge becomes is those are the same people that may be really close to pushing their body to its absolute limit. And they are probably at bigger risk of things like heat stroke, of things like, uh, you know, altitude sickness, of pushing them their body way harder than they want to. The other analogy I like to use is if you compared these two groups and what we're looking at is really your gas gauge in your car. Now we all have a certain amount of gas in our car and when it runs dry, we're gonna, the car is not going anywhere. But in our gas gauge, we all have a yellow kind of warning signal. And the question really becomes, how close to the absolute limit once the yellow light goes on are you willing to push yourself are you the type like these recreational individuals who as soon as they see the yellow light come on in the car 
they'll find the very next gas station and stop wherever they're going, find a gas station and fill up? Or are they like these adventure racers who will really push themselves to the absolute, absolute very last drop in their gas tank? And again, those are the people that might be at risk. So what happens for them is if you now throw on things that may alter their perception of exercise and how hard it is, that may be the trigger that really puts them over the edge. So simple things like taking painkillers beforehand, you know, if you are dulling your sensation of pain and you're already running really close to that limit, that's not a good thing. If you are, in a sense, artificially fooling your brain into thinking you're cooler than you are, that's not a good thing either. So it's really those elite athletes that are at, who are super motivated, who are willing to put up with a huge amount of discomfort. Those are also paradoxically the people who are most at risk at overdoing it. Most of us will say, whoa, 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 nope, I'm, I'm going to stop for gas, I'm going to slow down, or I'm not going to push myself as hard. But it's these super highly motivated individuals who are going to really be at risk. So those, in a sense, are the people that also hopefully are listening and know not to mess with their bodies or not to mess with their perception of how they are doing or to be really self-aware of themselves during a hard effort. Yeah, I think there's been some good advice given here, If depending on which end of the spectrum you're on. But I think there has been good advice for people on the end of the spectrum where oh, maybe they give up a little bit sooner than they should and how to build more resilience in that regard. And then people who are on the other extreme, how not to put yourself in danger. But what about people that are doing like the recreational people who do the Ironman, for example, and there's a lot of people there that are pushing themselves way past where they should be. And they're like getting IVs or they're getting, you know, I've heard of people who are recreational collapsing before they get to the finish line. Those people are also pushing past their physiological limit, right? Yeah, I think so. And I think in those individuals, it's probably more along the lines of a you know, they've really hit the physiological ceiling and their body just isn't you know, ready for that event, no matter how, in a sense, easy they're, they're taking it. Yes, they're going much slower than the elite finishers, but they are still putting their body through much more than they are possible of going. So in a sense, their gas tank is less, so they can't go as far. Whereas the really elite trained individuals they have a huge gas tank and also they're willing to put up with a lot of yellow warning on their, on their gas gauge. So I think in a sense, the reason for fatigue may be different in those groups. It may be because in those less fit individuals, the recreational athletes, their you know, capacity just isn't there and they are pushing themselves too hard. And yes, for everything from your sweating isn't as developed, if you're not as fit, if you're not as a really highly fit individual who has higher sweating capacity so you can put up with more thermal stress. So, you know, it's not necessarily a psychology thing for the less fit individuals. It's about your physiology and whether you can actually do something or not. So that's why I think people still need to be self-aware because you can still be highly motivated. Maybe your first Ironman and you've trained the last year for it, you've invested a lot of money and that may be your motivation for being there because you really don't want to disappoint your friends. But again, you're pushing your physiology too hard or it can be the elite individual, their physiology may be able to do something, but they're pushing 
their motivation is kind of the barrier and is pushing them above and beyond it. So there can be different reasons for fatigue. It can be physiological. It can also be primarily psychological or motivational. Something else that I find really interesting is about motivation in a lab setting versus in a race setting. Because a lot of, well, I think probably all studies are done in a lab because you need to have a controlled environment. And also people who are doing physiology testing just to see like, what's my FTP? What's my VO2 max? Like learning all those things. You might not get real readings in that setting. There's athletes that don't test very well because they're not motivated enough in that situation. And then they are able to go a lot harder in a race. Oh yeah, absolutely. And anytime you're in a race setting, you can always push yourself harder than you can in a lab. And there's also been classic studies of, we all know, you know, this whole crowd effect that's been known really forever since the dawn of exercise physiology in the early 1900s. We know that if there's a crowd observing you, you're going to push yourself harder, even in a lab setting. Mm -hmm. than if you were doing the exact same test with no feedback, I know, for example, all the many times I've done a VO2 max test, I want someone to be yelling at me. You know, if someone is just really not giving me any feedback or just giving me really casual feedback, oh yeah, you're doing good, Steven. You know, can you do another? <laughs> Versus really being that drill instructor that I go back to in my dreams and nightmares of, you know, really yelling at me, you know, I will push myself harder. So yes, you can always push yourself harder in a race setting than you can in training most of the time, you know, and that has been studied, for example, is, you know, is finance or is money the motivator? They've done some studies of looking at whether, you know, knowing there's a cash payout if you beat your previous best time in a time trial, is that motivating? And they found that, you know, it wasn't necessarily. And again, there's probably some people that are motivated by money or motivated by those external things or other People who are more, again, internally motivated, who, you know, it's not about being on the podium or about getting the prize, it's about pushing yourself. So, yeah, the crowd is a huge factor. So, yeah, ring those cowbells if you're spectating at a race, cheer, you know, kind of really support the racers and they're going to give you a better show. It's the road races where there's absolutely nobody in the pros and you know we have races in the middle east where there's minimal spectators and the pros just don't get motivated for those right versus being on an epic climb in uh, the tour of italy or tour of france where there's uh, tons and tons of people cheering as long as they don't get in the way they're a huge motivator yeah and world cup mountain biking i've never done one but man i would love to be just racing with that kind of crowd it would just be so fun to feel that energy yeah if nothing else uh, i know i've also been in races where i'm really looking for an excuse to quit but there's crowds everywhere and i go like i can't quit because i don't want to stop in front of people and so that's also been a motivator you don't want to look bad in front of other people so if that's your motivation hey use it right i forced myself through this the rest of this race because i didn't want to quit because there was no nowhere quiet for me to quit so in your lab, do you try to create an optimal environment so that people can feel the most motivated to push themselves? We try as best as we can. And all we can do at the end of the day is ask participants to give their hardest, most honest effort. But at the same time, there have been studies looking at deception in the lab and that works too. Oh, yeah. And there's been studies in whether it's where they're told they're competing against, uh, you know, another competitor, 
but what they're really competing against is their previous best time plus two percent in power output so you know it's only a tiny little bit but uh they're racing this other avatar and they're going like oh i'm gonna push myself and i'm gonna push myself even though this was their previous best time and they added two percent kind of wattage to it they still pushed themselves because they thought they were racing against someone else so we know that deception works we know that you know the other thing again going back to temperature there's been studies showing that they've had studies where they have posted at the same time as they're exercising their true core temperature and uh, in one trial and another trial they kind of artificially lowered their core temperature reading by just a tiny bit of amount and lo and behold they were willing to push themselves harder and for longer so we know there's a lot of ways to deceive or fool yourself Sometimes that's really useful in racing, but again, if it's those really elite people that are running at close risk of exceeding their physiology, I probably wouldn't want to mess around with that at all because that's what's going to push them over the limit. And what about music? It seems like music lowers your perception of effort and most people aren't allowed to use music in a race situation. So they How? just ride next to you and have a soundtrack yeah. the whole time. <laughs> Probably a soundtrack they don't want. <laughs> yeah. So like, what about using music during training and like how much of an increase should someone, can someone get from listening to music? The research that's been done definitely shows that music of the right type is effective. So, you know, probably Gregorian chants aren't what you want to be, uh, be training to. It's not necessarily either the right motivating for you unless you love Gregorian chants or it's also not really at the right rhythm. There's been some interesting studies looking at first off does music work? Yes it does and also what is kind of the optimal beat or cadence to it and they've done studies looking at using electronic music where kind of the rhythm and the cadence was just you know varying at different intensities and they showed that there seems to be an optimal range. I can't remember exactly the findings, but I remember that study in general showing that, yes, there is not just kind of a benefit of music, but benefit of music at the right rhythm and cadence. So if it's a really motivating playlist for you and if it pumps you up, that's great. If it's, you know, I have one that's really on my playlist just called Biking Tunes or Biking, and, you know, that's what I use when I really want to train hard, you know, I don't use my other general kind of everyday playlists for that. So develop something and we've seen all that in the pros, right? When they're training, warming up for a time trial or whatever, they'll have their headphones on both to block out external distractions, but also to really get themselves into the right headspace mentally to put out the right effort. So music can be used for many things. It can be used for training. It can be used to set yourself into the right rhythm. It can be useful for arousal, right? To get you in that right level of arousal that you need to perform your best for that effort, right? So again, that's where the Gregorian chants, unless you really, really need to calm down, probably isn't going to be, uh, be useful for you in warming up. Yeah. And then I also like getting a good song stuck in my head before the race. If I'm not allowed to have music, I try to listen to it right before. And then I try and repeat it in my head before the race starts without actual music. That way it gets stuck in my head and then using that as fuel. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we all have our 
kind of ideal warm-up songs. I know mine is Lenny Kravitz and Are You Gonna Go My Way. It's a short song, but it just gets me into the right mood, gets me into the right rhythm. Yeah, I don't necessarily listen to a ton of Lenny Kravitz, but you know that's the one song that works for me. So yeah, that's my favorite warm-up tune. And so if you have one that really works for you, go find out what it is and use it. Awesome. Well, I think that we covered a lot of really interesting topics and people can go even deeper into the research if they want to. If people want to find out more about you and some of the research you've done, what's the best place for them to find that? Or where is the best place, I should say? Sure. And we can link kind of to my contact info on the podcast, but I'm on Twitter for all my scientific stuff. And that's at E-E-L-B-R-O-C-K. So E-E-L stands for Environmental Ergonomics Lab. And then Brock is my university. And I also do writing for the website PezCyclingNews.com, which is all about sports science and or what I write in that site, which is all about pro cycling, is about training and fitness. So I manage a group of writers on there. And uh, every Tuesday we have what's called Toolbox, which is all about training and fitness. So I write about science there too. And yeah, those are probably two main places to get a hold of my science. And then obviously I have a book that came out in 2017 called Cycling Science. It was co-edited with Dr. Mikhail Zabala, who is the sports performance manager for the Movistar Pro Cycling Team. So that's, a, I feel, is a great resource for anything cycling related. We cover everything from biomechanics to pacing strategies, to environmental stress, to nutrition, psychology, really the whole gamut. So that's also really great resource, I feel, for books. So anyways, those are the three main ways to see what I do in the world of science and the world of research. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've taught us and for all the contributions you continue to make. Yeah, it's been my pleasure making your acquaintance. I love some of the guests and some of the features that you had so far and i'm really happy to be part of it thanks so much i hope you guys enjoyed that episode and if you learned something take a screenshot of the show and write down what you learned and how you're going to use it starting now i think that everyone will get something different out of this and i love to hear what's working for you for me the motivational self-talk on the trainer has been one of the best things because I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in the closed environment of riding the trainer and using trainer road, I suffer more than I do probably in a race. So sometimes I actually dread the pain of my workouts. So being able to get myself into a mental state and also have the right playlist and the right music where you can almost hypnotize yourself into not feeling the pain as strongly can really help you go harder. And he's so right. Dr. Chung is so right when he said that Whenever you can train yourself to suffer a lot in a workout, it makes the anticipation of suffering in the race not nearly as bad. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button if you're enjoying the show and want to make sure that you get notifications of future episodes. And again, if you want email notifications, feel free to sign up for my free newsletter, sonyalooney.com newsletter. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. I'm stoked that you're here. I really appreciate you listening to the podcast and sharing your time with us. Wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures, and we'll see you back here next week.